0: Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sammasambuddhassa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sammasambuddhassa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sammasambuddhassa Buddhaam Dhamma Sangha Namah I'd like to welcome everybody this afternoon to uh, Amaravati. Uh, I suspect that uh, most people will recognize from the, uh, the words of the title. Uh, this is a, uh, a bit of a quote from uh, Shakespeare's play Hamlet, and uh, famous um, words from that, uh, his uh, most well-known soliloquy, his uh, solo speech, uh, where Hamlet is wondering what he's going to do He's in a state of doubt. Um, and uh, he's suspicious that his uncle has uh, killed his father and um, married uh, his mother, the queen. And uh, he's wondering what he should do about this. So uh, young Hamlet, Prince Hamlet, is in a, a quandary. Uh, and uh, he begins this, this soliloquy, this, uh, this uh, say expression of his own doubt with these words. To be or not to be, that is the question. And if I remember the rest of the the quotation, it goes, To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Now even if you have English as your first language, that might be a bit mysterious as to what that uh, uh, is saying, um, because it, you know, Shakespeare uses his uh, kind of, uh, graphic and colorful language um, to, to come forward it's quite all right to sit in the front here. people can see, yes, very good. be brave. <laughs> so um, to be or not to be, so the the two. Um, The two prongs, the two horns of the the dilemma, to be or not to be, is whether it's um, wiser to to take action, and as Shakespeare puts it, to uh, to take arms against a sea of troubles. So, like to to uh, uh, to say, get involved, to uh, say, bring uh, what resources you have, and to oppose. Uh, uh, the sea of troubles or the difficulties and the, the um, painfulness and stress of the situation, to take arms against the sea of troubles, like pick up your weapons and, and attack uh, the sea of troubles and um, uh, to, uh, as he says, by opposing, end them. So you, you come to the end of your troubles by attacking them and, uh, and uh, you bring them to an end that way. Or the, uh, the other possibility, the other uh, side, of the dilemma is to, um, to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So that means to just stand there and just uh, get, uh, get run over, to, uh, to be passive, to say, not take action, but just to uh, let, the, let the world happen, let it do its thing, and to, um, say, make no reaction, no, no, uh, no response, no contention. Do come forward. There's plenty of cushions down here yeah. so these are the the two uh, uh, two horns of the dilemma that uh, that Hamlet is caught between. Should I be passive and just simply um, let the world happen, so um, acquiesce, give in to the way the world is, so, so surrender to the way the world is, and do nothing. Um, or should I um, take action? Should I get engaged? Should I sort of change the world to be uh, more the way that, that I want it to be? Should I get involved and, and say uh, change, change things according to my will? And uh, so the, one of the reasons why this is such a, a famous uh, speech and, and has been so, influ- so influential over these many centuries, since Shakespeare's time to the present, is because this it represents the uh, difficulties that we all have. What's the right thing to do to handle this situation? Uh, Should I do something? Should I not do something? Should I be passive? Should I be active? And essentially it's uh, should I contend against the world and uh, and fight against it to to make it more the way I would like it to be or um, should I just surrender and uh, give in to the way the world is and find peace that way? And so we can easily get caught between the, these two possibilities: should I be, uh, say, uh, active and involved to make things happen, or in in, in uh, you can use the uh, the term from Buddhist psychology of bhava tanha, the desire to become? Should I get you know, get get stuck in, get involved, or should I just be passive and let things be as they are, and just sort of uh, resolve, try to uh, resolve my um, difficulties by Say inaction by by switching off by not feeling by not experiencing. So in Buddhist psychology, we call that vibhava tanha, the desire to to not be, to not feel, to to not exist. Well, oftentimes um, when reflecting on this theme, uh, 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 the uh, the understanding of of uh, Buddhism in this respect is mistaken. Oftentimes people Say so they take the idea of non-attachment. We you know, we hear Buddhist teachings, we read Buddhist books, and they're you know, always talking about uh, uh, letting go of desire, non-attachment, um, non-clinging. And so it can often seem that uh, the uh, the Buddhists would all vote for um, to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, just be be passive, do nothing, just suffer. The uh, the uh, the uh, difficulties and, and stresses and strains of life, and um, take that that particular uh, angle. But I would suggest uh, that this is a wrong understanding of Buddhist teachings. And oftentimes people assume that well, if you're a Buddhist, you're not supposed to desire anything. You shouldn't want anything if you're going to be a Buddhist. You know, Buddhists aren't allowed to any, Buddhists aren't allowed to, uh, allowed to want anything, are they? People come and say things to me like that, which is um, you think, well, it's not quite that way, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, it's easy to misunderstand it because uh, you, you get this represented in, in many teachings. Uh, so that uh, I thought it would be uh, helpful to first of all you know, look at that that aspect of of um, uh, say why non-attachment is is not the same as passivity. So in terms of, of um, Understanding why this should be, I think we, we, miss, we mistake the fact that um, uh, you say, our involvement in life, our experience of, uh, of the world, the things that we, we live with, um, we, are, uh, we are a part of that. We are a part of the world. So when we, when we say, um, "I want to practice non-attachment," um, you're still breathing. You're still occupying space. You're still part of a family. You're still living in relationship to other human beings. And so that um, you are involved, we are involved. We we are the world. So if you want to, if you to, if you take the idea of non-attachment as being somehow uh, separated from the world or not involved in the world, if you take that too too literally, then taking the next breath is going to be very difficult, <laughs> right? Because we breathe all the time. You know, so you can say, well, this is Hertfordshire and this is me, right? <gasps> now. <laughs> That bit of Hertfordshire is now me. And then I breathe out, and then that bit of me now becomes Hertfordshire. So where do I stop, and where does the the world begin? So what I I suggest is that we are part of the world. The world is part of us. And that when we we talk about um, uh, non-attachment, it's not a matter of trying to just create some sort of isolated little little bubble where we're just sort of uh, recording the data of life. And so registering or seeing, seeing, hearing, hearing, feeling, feeling, <laughs> and um, trying to neutralize our, uh, ourselves uh, that uh, oftentimes people can have that that uh, that sense of oh if I'm really meditating correctly, i wouldn't feel anything right <laughs> or if uh, uh, you know, if i'm meditating i shouldn't be i shouldn't be um perceiving anything or feeling anything um, and I would say this is really a, a misunderstanding because. We are involved. We are part of the world. The world is part of us. We have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, a body, a mind, and so that our uh, our involvement in the world is is intrinsic uh, to uh, to our experience, and also our um, our choices are also part of the way things are. Oftentimes, we think, well, to um, uh, to just be content or to be um, to be at peace with the way things are means um, be passive. So uh, many of you would have heard Ajahn Sumedho give many teachings over the years, right? And he would say, this is the way it is. In his inimitable way, this is the way it is. And so oftentimes people hear that and they say, oh, well, therefore, don't do anything. <laughs> therefore, just uh, switch off and, and be passive. But that's not what uh, Lumpur Sumedho was, was meaning. Because also, your, your own common sense is part of the way things are. Your own wisdom is part of the way it is. Your own involvement in life is part of of the way things are. And so, when uh, you uh, you see oh, oh, oh I can lend a hand here. I can I can do something useful. Then um, it's that in it, that sensitivity and that initiative is also part of the way things are. And being able to say can I help with the washing up <laughs> is uh, is uh, also. Uh, part of the whole mix of things. So, it, but if you feel like, oh no, I'm supposed to be practicing non-attachment. I should just be at peace with the way things are. As a part, you know, a sink full of dirty dishes, and people are saying, "Would you like to help?" And say, "Well, actually, no. I'm just being at peace with the way things are myself. <laughs> so, you can wash them." <laughs> so, as you can tell, this is completely wrong understanding, and also probably earn you a few scowls, and uh, even not a few enemies in the kitchen. So. Uh, I would say that when we are talking about um, non, uh, non-attachment, non-clinging, uh, being at peace with things, that uh, uh, it's very important to understand that uh, w- that this is not, uh, say, encouraging a, a, a kind of a foolish um, uh, sort of neutrality or, or a, a, um, a kind of nullification of our life. Not at all. But it's more to do with the. The attitude with which we live in relationship to the world. I'll, I'll pursue that. I'll, I intend to pursue that point a little bit more later on, but I just wanted to put that into the mix uh, straight away because it's. Uh, I feel it's a very crucial point. But in, in Hamlet's dilemma, um, he's uh, he's caught in this this uh, say this question of should I do something or should I do nothing? What's what's the best way forward? What's the right thing to do here? But in that, um, there is, uh, I say, that question or that um, problem is based upon a fixed sense of I. There's a me here who's, who's stuck in a situation. What should I do? There must be a right thing for me to do. Now, is it, is it to, to, uh, to, to switch off and do nothing or is it to take action? And so is it to acquiesce, to, to surrender to the, wor- to the way the world is, or is it to to uh, contend against the world you know what should i do and uh, uh, one of the one of the things that is very unique and helpful about the buddha's teaching is he's, uh, he would say well let's look at this feeling of i let's look at the the presumption that there's a me a separate individual me here who's confronted with this this choice and that um so maybe the maybe the problem is not just which of two options is uh, the best thing to choose, but also maybe the issue uh, to attend to is this feeling of I and me and mine, that uh, uh, that is something to bring attention to. So it's not just in, in terms of what are uh, the, the, the possible choices, but who is it that's, uh, that's trying to choose? You know, who is it that's experiencing the, di- the dilemma? What is this feeling of, of I and me and mine? Oh, in uh, in the, the Buddha's teachings, uh, he points out that as long as there is a feeling of I, then there's going to be uh, the experience of discontent, dissatisfaction, insecurity. Uh, as he said, the, the, the I am, the, the I am feeling, uh, uh, asmi mana, the, the conceit of I am, the, uh, the way the mind formulates the feeling of I and me and mine, as long as that's present, so he that said, that, that is a conceiving, we, we are creating, the mind is creating this sense of self. And any kind of conceiving like that, to create our self, so that conceiving it's called manyati in Pali. Manyati, this is a, a disease, it's like a, a tumour, it's like a poisoned arrow. So that, you know, whatever you are, uh, as long as you are fixed on that, I am this, I am that, that's going to have a painful consequence. Now, in English, when we use the word conceit, it usually means that we're being inflated. Like, I'm a wonderful person, I'm much better than you. We'd say, what a conceited person. But uh, conceit in Buddhist psychology is much more broad than that. And, there's a, a, and the, uh, the teachings are very thorough in this. So you actually have the nine different types of conceit. I hope I won't put everybody to sleep, or completely to sleep. So the nine different types of conceit are, if you are better than everybody... Um, and you think that you're the same as, that's a conceit. If you're better than everybody and you think you're worse than everybody, that's a conceit. If you're better than everybody and you are better than everybody, that's a conceit. If you're better than everyone and you think you're the same as, that's a con- uh, Sorry, if you're, if you're the same as everybody and you think you're better, that's a conceit. If you're, same, if you're the same and you think you're the same as, that's a conceit. If you're the same and you think you're worse than, that's a conceit. If you're worse than everyone and you think you're the best, that's a conceit. If you're worse and you think you're the same as, that's a conceit. And if you're worse than everyone, and you, uh, and you think you're, the wor- you're worse than everyone, that's the ninth type of conceit. So whatever you conceive yourself to be, as long as there's the I am, it's painful. <laughs> so whether you're, um, uh, and is, is, I think it's interesting to consider, if you are better than everyone, and you think I am better than everyone, <laughs> even if it's technically accurate in some respect that's still a conceit. Uh, there's, there's a, 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 a false uh, view of a, of a separate individual entity is, is being created. Now in the, in the Buddha's teaching he says um, that to, to be free of this conceit, to be free of that, that conceiving of I am, so this is the, the highest kind of happiness. So this is When the heart is free of that uh, that kind of conceit uh, of I am, so that is nirvana here and now. Just kind of that's the experience of nirvana, total happiness in the in the moment that the heart is freed from that I am, I me and mine feeling. That is nirvana right here. So that's kind of an interesting, powerful statement. So that gets attractive, right? Ooh, (laughs) nirvana! Yes, I'll I'll sign up. (laughs) Count count me in. So that that uh, and that that uh, understanding of this feeling of self and learning to, to let go of it. So this is a very central element in, in Buddhist teachings. And it's also quite unique in, in some respects. That there aren't that many other spiritual teachings that, uh, that speak about uh, the, the feeling of self and, then, and the importance of letting go of self. or that, you know, How all feelings of self are, are intrinsically um, delusory or, or uh, mistaken. You know, Buddhist teachings are almost uh, unique in, in pointing to that. So um, there's a lot of emphasis on that. Um, and it can be very attractive. But also, we can take the idea of not-self. We hear these, these teachings that the Buddha saying, all, thing, all dhammas, all uh, all things in the world are not-self. They're not who and what we are. They don't have any permanent or absolute owner. And so that, that we can read that. We can hear these teachings. Oh, yeah, that's really great. That's true. I think, uh, I really like that idea. And uh, particularly if you've had a difficult time with Christianity and you don't like the idea of a soul or a spirit, and you, and this, uh, you can hear these teachings and think, yes, the Buddha taught we have no soul. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, again, uh, Lumpur Sameda would often point out that um, this is a, a, uh, uh, you know, a, a way of thinking that we can be uh, attracted by or we can, so we can be um, drawn by that. Just because we are, say, uh, upset or annoyed by a different uh, set of religious teachings, but we can we can find that uh, um, just appealing in its own right, even if we're not recovering from Christian teachings or other theistic teachings, it can be appealing to us the idea of uh, of uh, of not self. So, uh, uh, because we can feel like the most burdensome or, or um, obstructive thing in in our life is this. Uh, egotistical thinking, self-centered thinking, and these self-centered habits, and we can see for ourselves uh, that whenever my mind dwells on I and me and mine, it just creates so much conflict and stress and difficulty. If only I could free my heart from this, uh, and if I could only just uh, dispel these egotistical thoughts and attitudes, then everything would be great. And so we, we find that Buddhist teachings talk about this, and it can be very attractive. But also we can, uh, uh, we can mistakenly take hold of that as an idea and say, yeah, I believe in no self. That's, that's what the, you know, I really like this idea. And so then we take that idea of, of, uh, of there being no self or um, that all things are not self and we can make another identity out, out of that. And uh, I've uh, often told the story of how this, um, <clears throat> being at the, um, the Buddhist Society Summer School many years ago and... Um, there was a, a fellow there who was and this kind of why I was uh, thinking of it in these terms that there's this fellow who was really uh, enamored of the idea of not self he thought this was the most important principle of buddhist teachings and so he would never use uh, he would never use the the word i to refer to himself he would call himself it so you know it would like a cup of tea or a, you know it's had enough of this Dhamma talk he wants to go out for a walk now and so uh you know, you could understand that the the intent behind it, but you, I thought his wife must have been some kind of great bodhisattva. You know, <laughs> just to live with this sort of ardently refusing to use the word "I" and kind of maneuvering you know, endlessly just to to never say the word "I". But um, it, but even though carefully avoiding that, the the first person singular is a as a word. Actually, <laughs> they're still creating a feeling of self, like you know, I always talk in terms of the third person. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I would never say, it it would never say I. (laughs) So that's a conceit right there, if you can follow the the flow of this. Or rather like when uh, someone, when they're uh, using the lowercase I to write in English, or determinately not using a a capital I to to write the word I, it leaps off the page at me and says, I'm not using a capital, you know. (laughs) I'm so humble, you know, I'm so self-effacing, I don't use a capital, so you know look look at me i'm so, look at me i'm so humble yeah <laughs> so we can we can attach to the idea the idea of not self and and still be creating a self out of it uh, there there are certainly um Ways that uh, you know, we can look at the teachings, and, and they can seem to support that. Like we can say, well, actually, you know, the Buddha never says I. The Buddha never uses a personal pronoun. He says the Tathagata, you know, the the, the thus come one, the one who has thus come, thus gone. You know, he uses a special word to refer to what could be what could be known as himself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so people like to take a leaf out of the Buddha's book and copy and copy that, but. Uh, just taking an idea and replicating it is not the same as actually uh, as, it, as uh, being in the same, uh, say, say, dwelling in the same realization as a Buddha. So we can, say, take the idea or the thought of not-self and hang on to it and, cl- and cling to it, and it still becomes another identity that we, we carry around. Now, along with the teachings on not-self, it can also be something that's off-putting or, or frightening. And the people in the Buddha's time uh, accused him of being a nihilist that because he gave all these teachings about saying, you know, all things are not-self, that uh, the perception of you know, I and me and mine is a, uh, this is a, uh, a disease, a tumor, a poisoned arrow. Um, and using this kind of language, then they accused the Buddha of being a nihilist, saying, that all, you, you're just uh, uh, teaching a doctrine of nihilism, saying that, you know, that uh, people don't really, uh, no beings don't really exist. and At the end of the uh, end of a life, then uh, a being just disappears. And the Buddha said, "No, that's not what I teach. You know, those who say that I teach this, they, they misrepresent me, and they they uh, they do not say what, what I say. I do not teach the the uh, the annihilation of an existing being. You know, that's not what I teach. What I teach is suffering and the ending of suffering, dukkha and the ending of dukkha." And so even though he was often accused of being a nihilist, you know, saying that, uh, that people misunderstanding his, um, his teachings about anatta, he, he stuck with that his, uh, throughout his entire teaching career and, and stayed with that and conveyed that as a principle. Because he, th- he felt it was more uh, important to, to put things in, in, in a, uh, as true a way as possible and to, to deal with a few misunderstandings than to, to, to misrepresent the truth. So, even though he was often, um, say, regarded as as a nihilist, uh, he was prepared to live with that, and that uh, people would think, "But no, but you're, you know, all this stuff about anattā, you are talking about you know, uh, you know, being, uh, beings disappearing, or like, if an enlightened being passes away, where do they go? You know, what, what happens to them?" And uh, he wouldn't answer that question. He would uh, he would remain silent, or he would he would say, "This is the wrong question. <laughs> I teach suffering and the end of suffering. That's all." So people would get frustrated by that and say, well, what happens to the self when the, when the body dies then? And um, you know, there, there's an analogy where um, uh, you know, when, the uh, when, the, when we're thinking about this area of, of teachings and practice, where if you're walking along through the grass and you see a, a, a round shape in the grass, and you think, ah, oh, it's a snake. This kind of works more in Asia where you get snakes in the grass more often. Than... <laughs> Here in England, you go, oh, it's a snake, oh, where's my camera? You know. Get out, whip out your iPhone and take a picture, you know. And so we kind of, tr- this, this analogy comes more from places where you're, you're, you're likely to be treading on dangerous snakes. And, uh, and so then you, um, you, uh, you see this, this round shape in the grass, go, oh, it's a snake, and you feel anxious, and then you look again and you realize, oh, it's not a snake, it's just a coil of rope. And you feel relaxed and at peace. And then you you reflect. Well, what happened to the snake when the coil of rope was recognized? Nothing happened to the snake because there never was one. And so then the the, the Buddha points to this, say, well, just in the same way, you can't. When you say what happens to the self uh, when when the body dies, it's it's the wrong question. It's like nothing happens to it because that's not there never was one in the first place. You know, it's a mistake. It's a a set of mistaken perceptions that. uh, are being atta- uh, attached to, and so it's uh, uh, more important to understand how this perception of I and me and mine, this this separate, the perception of a separate individual, gets formed, and how we can uh, understand that and break free from that. Actually, I was <laughs> I was at a a, um, a retreat once, and and the um, the teacher was was telling this story, and. Um, the uh, the trans after the teacher had told this story about the snake and the rope, the translator chimed in and said, "Could I say something here?" Which is kind of uh, uh, a, bit, a bit unusual. And the translator said, "Last night I was walking through the grass, and I thought I trod on a coil of rope, and it turned out to be a snake." <laughs> 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 Just thought I'd throw that into the pit, into the mixture. <laughs> so, so the. Uh, um, the 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 Buddha gave many teachings about this habit of, of either um, attaching to existence or attaching to non-existence. Yeah, you know, the the, um, the dilemma of being and not being, to be or not to be. You know, because it's, it's not just about you know what choice to make. It's all, It's also about um, you know, the the feeling of self. Is that real and solid and absolute, or is it just a a, a total illusion? You know, or that uh, should be ignored. And uh, he, he gave, gave many teachings about this. So I thought I'd read a few of these and um, from this collection, which, of which there is a chapter in this book called The Island, which, co- quite coincidentally, is entitled To Be or Not To Be. <laughs> uh, is that the question? So in this, um, in this book, we have, um, let's see. Let's see. Where are we? This is a teaching that the Buddha gave to Mahakachana, who was one of the great enlightened disciples. And uh, this is... um, a, uh, a very well-known teaching. Also, it was the, um, became the basis of uh, uh, Nagarjuna's Majumika philosophy in the, from uh, the Indian uh, philosophical tradition after the, well after the Buddha's time. So the Venerable Kachana Gota approached the Blessed One, paid respects to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? This world, Kachana, for the most part, depends upon the dualism of the notions of existence and non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with right understanding, there is no notion of non-existence with regards to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with right understanding, there is no notion of existence with regards to the world. This world, Kachana, is for the most part shackled by bias, clinging, and insistence. But one such as this with right view, instead of becoming engaged, instead of clinging, instead of taking a stand about myself to such a bias, clinging, mental standpoint, adherence and underlying tendency, such a one has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising and what ceases is only dukkha, only suffering ceasing. In this, then, knowledge is independent of others. In, it is in this way, kachana, that there is right view. All exists, kachana, this is one extreme. All does not exist. This is the other extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle way. So you could probably sit for a week on that, (laughs) that teaching. Um, But uh, as he says, if you attach to things when they are there, if you if you look at things as they arise and you see the arising of experience, how it takes shape, then that uh, counteracts the um, the habit of of. uh, of seeing that things don't exist. And similarly, if you have a tendency towards believing that everything exists, everything is solid and real, then as things fade away and dissolve, then that, that dissolution, that ending of things, counteracts the habit of of, uh, of thinking that things are, are solid and real. Then there's a... Um, let's see. Uh, a passage that comes from... Um, just after the Buddha's enlightenment, which is a very um, uh, potent set of reflections. So this is, this is the, the Buddha's consideration of his own experience, just after his enlightenment. And he says, whatever, whatever summoners or brahmins, whatever monastics or brahmins have described liberation from being, to come about through the love of being, none, I say, are liberated from being. And whatever summoners, whatever monastics or brahmins have described escape from being to come about through love of non-being. None, I say, have escaped from being. Through attachment to existence, suffering is. With all clinging exhausted, suffering is no more. Whatever states of being there are of any kind, anywhere, all are impermanent, pain-haunted, and subject to change. One who sees this as it is, thus abandons craving for existence, without relishing non-existence." So this, uh, these are both talking in a way, I would suggest, about uh, Hamlet's dilemma, that uh, the, uh, finding the middle way, uh, where well, it's neither caught up in the realm of contending against the world or are acquiescing to the world, so that you're not just um, pursuing the, 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 the idea that everything exists or the idea that nothing exists. Um, and as the Buddha says it here, abandons craving for existence without relishing non-existence. Now, you might think this is just wishy-washy thinking, <laughs> and that uh, uh, this is kind of, um, uh, say, the just the, um, um, sort of philosophical wordplay. But the, I feel these are very important uh, points to consider, and that uh, the theme for, for this talk is a way of investigating how. Uh, How it can be that we are, um, say, in this world, we experience this world, and how we can find a quality of real uh, peacefulness, how we can live in the world, be engaged with the world, we're living uh, attuned to things, but how can we do that peacefully? How can we, say, uh, both find the quality of perfect ease and, and peacefulness and contentment, and also be uh, engaging attentively and mindfully, taking action and responding to life. So um, even though the, the language of the suttas and these quotes are a bit stylized and not the kind of language that you, you, know, you chat you know, uh, over a morning coffee with, with your friends or, <laughs> or that uh, you, you know, is uh, used on the, yeah, your average TV program, I feel that these are, are useful, important principles to pick up and, and explore. Yes? Sure, so that the first one was uh, Sanyuta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, Section 12, Sutta number 15, the one to Kacayana. So Sangyuta 12, 15. And this uh, last one was from the Udana, the Inspired Utterances, and that's uh, Section 3, Sutta number 10. Now the... Um, one of the most uh, helpful teachings on this is, um, uh, comes from another book of the suttas, which is called the Itiwutaka, which literally means, thus it was said. And the Buddha again talks about these two different um, possibilities, two different attitudes. This was said by the Buddha. Bhikkhus, held by two kinds of views, some devas and human beings hold back and some overreach. Only those with vision see. And how, bhikkhus, do some hold back? Some devas and humans enjoy being. They delight in being. They're satisfied with being, with existence. When the Dhamma is taught to them for the cessation of being, for letting go, and non-attachment to being, to existence, their minds do not enter into it or acquire confidence in it or settle upon it or become resolved upon it. Thus, bhikkhus, do some hold back. How because do some overreach? Now some are troubled, ashamed, and disgusted by this very same quality of being, by existence, and they rejoice in the idea of non-being, asserting, good sirs, when the body perishes at death, this self is annihilated and destroyed and does not exist anymore. This is true peace, this is excellent, this is reality. That sounds like a few sort of, <laughs> but a skeptical materialist Buddhists, or non-Buddhists, very popular view these days. Thus bhikkhus do some overreach. And how bhikkhus do those with vision see? Herein one sees what has come to be as having come to be. Having seen it thus, one practices the course for turning away, for dispassion, for the cessation of what has come to be. Thus bhikkhus do those with vision see. So that is Iti Vuttaka, Sutta number 49. The Iti Vuttaka. So this uh, again describes this of the... the, um, on the one hand, we have this kind of um, life-affirming view. Yes, I love life, it's great. When you talk about ending rebirth, no, I don't want to end rebirth, I want to come back. It's great fun, I really enjoy it, I want to come back again. That kind of life-affirming, life is good, it's great, it's marvelous, it's wonderful. That sort of life-affirming, uh, having been in California for 20 years, there's a sort of life affirmation central over there. But uh, you might have noticed, it's only certain bits of life that get affirmed. Like when people criticize you, when you get fired from your job, when you get some kind of debilitating illness, you know, like, uh, uh, um, and so forth, then those bits of life are not affirmed. <laughs> it's only the sort of positive, uh, de- delightful, and enjoyable bits that, that get affirmation of the, the, uh, the grim side does not, from my experience. <laughs> and then the other, this sort of, the nihilist view, very popular with the um, skeptical materialist um, uh, uh, it's a uh, approach to things where that, uh, and it's very very common amongst uh, Western Buddhists to say you know, uh, <clears throat> and um, so in in Asia where uh, you have the uh, idea of past lives and future lives is taken absolutely for granted by almost everybody. Uh, in the West, people uh, uh, often shudder at the idea of past lives, future lives, and they've come into to, to, uh, to the, the field of Buddhist thought and, and Buddhist practice to get away from all that stuff. <laughs> They they like the idea that we've we've come from nowhere. We have one life, and then we stop breathing, and that's it. You know, it's all over. Uh, game finished. And uh, th- and even um, even uh, very experienced and knowledgeable Buddhist teachers uh, have uh, uh, you know assert this very firmly. I, I've uh, sat across the table from you know one one good friend of mine, who said, "You don't actually believe that stuff, do you?" Think like about past lives and I mean re- you don't really believe that do you like this <laughs> kind of amazed at the concept that any any practicing Buddhist would would give that any kind of credibility and um so that uh this is this has a lot of credence particularly in the era of people like um Richard Dawkins <laughs> the, the blessed St. Richard and uh the uh, other kind of skeptical materialist um thinkers and and writers uh, that uh they they really love this idea of uh, of just uh, uh, the, the life finishing at the death of the body and then no remainder carrying on. Um, but it's, I feel it's imp- important to consider how the Buddha calls this you know, overreaching that you, you know you're going too far, and the ones who are um, uh, life affirming and who are uh, eager to get reborn again, <laughs> and, uh, and clinging to life, um, that that is. Uh, you know, holding back, that they're, they're not, say, uh, recognizing or not acknowledging the element of cessation, that the things do come to an end, and, so, um, and also that the, uh, the other ones are not acknowledging that things, you know, things do arise, <laughs> and that, uh, as he said, they, they overreach. And then this last passage, I feel, is the most useful one, or most significant. How do those with vision see? Uh, herein one sees what has come to be as having come to be, having seen it thus... One practices the course for turning away, for dispassion, for the cessation of what has come to be. So this is not so much a philosophical position, but it's more describing meditation practice, and particularly insight meditation, so that um, whether what arises is something that we like or that we dislike or is something that's neutral, we're recognizing, oh, here is a thought, here is a feeling, here is a memory, here is a perception. Yeah, this has come to be. Here is the feeling of I, the feeling of me. Uh, whether it's I'm the best or I'm the worst or I'm really average <laughs> the, uh, we, there's a recognition oh, this is a, a, a formation a, a pattern of consciousness that has come to be it's come into being it does its thing and then um, they're watching the, the as he says practicing for the course for turning away for dispassion which means to say well whether you like it you don't have to get drunk on it or get caught up in it or whether you dislike it you don't have to resist it or, or get stressed about it it's just uh, a pattern uh, of, uh, of the natural world, uh, a pattern of, of feeling, of thought. It comes into being, it does its thing, then it fades away. And so uh, this is the, um, the essence of, of Vipassana meditation, is exactly that, that process whereby you're able to, um, say, uh, uh, observe the arising and passing uh, of what we like, what we dislike, what is familiar, what is unfamiliar, and that... We are uh, learning how not to form a sense of self, not to create what arises and passes away as me and mine, but rather to, to look directly at the, uh, the memories, the thoughts, the feelings, the plans, the intentions, um, the, the loves and hates, and memories that nobody else knows about, you know, feelings and uh, ideas that are completely unique, unique to us that we say... Uh, In ordinary everyday speech, we say, "But that is mine. That is my memory. Nobody else has that." Yeah. If I'm not remembering that, who who is? But uh, vipassana meditation, insight practice, is a way of bringing the attention to looking at that—the very feeling of "I." That's my memory. I remember. I think. I feel. That's pain in my leg. (laughs) That's my confusion. This is my doubt. And to be able to take a, a step back to, to recognize, well, the feeling of doubt arises and passes away. The feeling of mindness mamankara in Pali, the feeling of mindness arises and passes away. And then the, uh, the more uh, fully that uh, quality of insight is developed, then the more it's recognized that to say it's my memory or my feeling or I'm hearing or I'm thinking, that's, that's being added on and actually that there is, we, accurately, we can just say there is hearing, there is feeling, there is remembering, there is, there is sensing. And that's all. To call it my memory, my thought, uh, is, uh, say, uh, adding on extra. And what the, the Buddha points to in teachings on this area is, is when we are able to just be with uh, the, the awareness of hearing and feeling, smelling, tasting, touching, uh, uh, thinking, uh, and knowing that for what it is, then in that very recognition and uh, seeing that, oh, this is not self, this is not me or mine, this is not who and what I am. We let go of what are called the gaha, or the, the obsessions, the um, craving, conceit, and views. We, we are able to let go of that way of relating to our experience and instead recognize, oh, this is it's a memory, but it's, it's not who and what I am, there isn't really an owner. There's a feeling in the body, it's felt here, it's known in this awareness, but it doesn't, uh, that which knows it is not really the owner or the controller. It's not the possessor of that experience, but it's known here, it, it arises and is known here. And uh, again, this is not just a, not a philosophical position to believe in, but a way of exploring our experience. And, and when this is carried out, when you, you uh, say, develop insight meditation, Then, in that that uh, letting go, in that in that kind of non-attachment, rather than creating a a sort of a a numbness or a a kind of nullifying of our sense of being, there's a a, in a way, there's an unobstructed flow of experience of hearing, feeling, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, remembering, planning. It arises, takes shape in the mind, and and dissolves. but there, there's no grasping hold of, the, uh, of the, the, the pleasant or pushing away of the painful. There's no contending against experience. So we're, in a sense, finding that middle way where we're not contending against the world or just um, switching off and, um, and numbing ourselves or, or, uh, or taking a position of passivity against the world. But we're receiving the world, knowing the world, and letting go of the world. And in that, receptivity uh, in that attunement to, to life, then we, we find that our responses to, to the world, to what we hear and see and smell and taste and touch, they're far more in tune with what is going to be helpful to ourselves, to the, the people around us, to the situation that we're living in. Um, they, are, they are far more attuned. And this is essentially what the middle way means. When we are not creating a sense of I and me and mine, But instead, uh, uh, training the heart to abide in the quality of mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya, when there's a real attunement um, without self-centered thinking cluttering up the picture. Then, when there's something to be said, then we say it. If there's nothing to be said, then we keep quiet. (laughs) If there's time to be cheerful, then you you can be cheerful. When it's time to be solemn, you're you're solemn. When it's time to, to recognize you're in the fog and you can't see, you recognize, oh, it's foggy, I can't see. <laughs> More blinking or turning up the lights is not going to help. This is foggy, I can't see. The way forward is not clear. So even when things are not uh, apparent, the way of handling a situation or what to do is not obvious at all, at least we can, we can recognize, I don't have to create stress. I don't have to create conflict or contention in myself because right now it's foggy. <laughs> Therefore, you can't see. Okay, just... Wait for a bit and maybe the fog will lift and then uh, vision will be possible later on. So this uh, 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 is the, um, in a sense, the resolution of uh, the dilemma, I would suggest, in my somewhat humble, well, not very humble opinion, <laughs> my conceited opinion. I say this is the, the resolution. Uh, and as uh, the, the Buddha said in the, the teaching to Kacchayana, you know, what are I, uh, that... Um, it all exists is one extreme, all does not exist is the other extreme. You know, that we're, uh, if we are practicing, the, and rather than clinging to either extreme, the, the, the targeter teaches the practice of the middle way. So that middle way uh, is essentially this quality of attunement. So it's not compulsively contending against the world and trying to make it how we like. It's not switching off and, nu- and numbing ourselves to the world and becoming passive but rather it's uh, an attunement to the world and a, uh, a commitment to that sense of, of, uh, 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 of selfless uh, awareness that uh, is so, so valuable and is always accessible to us. Now when we talk about the middle way, again this is something else that people very easily misunderstand. They think, well I like to practice the middle way, I just have a couple of drinks, you know. You know. You know, I, I never get drunk. You know, I practice the middle way, you know, I just have a couple of drinks when it's time. You know, when 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 it's dinner time or when out with friends. You know, middle way. You know, I'm not an extremist. This is not what the Buddha means. The, the middle way doesn't mean, um, uh, yeah, just uh, <coughs> being indulgent half the time and being abstemious you know, the other half of the time. <laughs> it's like having seconds only three and a half days of the week, and. Uh, and only having one helping the other three and a half days. Yeah, this is not what is meant by the middle way. Um, I mean, there's, It's not that the Buddha has a monopoly on the term, but uh, in, in, in this philosophy of the middle way, it's not just 50-50. It's not just sort of halfway between two extremes. But rather, I like to think of it this is the, the way I like to, to um, represent the middle way. If you can, <laughs> everybody can see, so that so the usual way of thinking the middle way. So this is the extreme of, of say, um, uh, of uh, of having. This is the extreme of, of not having. And then we think of the middle way as well, having half the time and not having the other half of the time. So you know, going fifty-fifty, so that uh, rather than you know this extreme one side, this extreme the other, and then the the uh, going fifty-fifty, having sort of. A, just getting, just getting uh, <coughs> having a couple of drinks with your, <laughs> with your friends every so often is, uh, is the middle way. But uh, rather, the middle way is not just sort of halfway between the two extremes, but it's the point where the two extremes pivot from. You can see this. So rather than being sort of 50-50 halfway between the two extremes, it's where the two extremes emanate from, so it's like the, the point where things pivot from. So uh, I like to to reflect on it in that way, that the, rather than, the <coughs> than a, a more mechanistic way of, of um, looking at the majima padipada the middle way, there is, uh, in a sense, it's describing an attitude, uh, a mode of being, where you're, uh, there's that quality of uh, being centered. And so then rather than uh, contending against the world uh, as one extreme, or or, um, switching off and and numbing ourselves to the world, being passive, that when we keep the middle way, rather what we're doing is learning how to work with the world. So not, not contending against the world, not capitulating to the world, but learning how to work with the world. So it's this quality of attuning ourselves to the situation and then recognizing... Our choices, our intentions are a part of the way things are. So if when we attune ourselves to a situation you recognize, well, I've got a quarter of an hour to spare. There's a, there's a sink full of dishes and there's only one person there. I could lend a hand. So practicing non-attachment means letting go of your of your hesitation <laughs> to go and help out wash the dishes. Or, or um, it's uh, also in a slightly different situation. There's already five people at the sink and there's... And uh, there, there's not much room there, and you recognize, well, if there wasn't already five people, I would lend a hand. But they've already got plenty of people, so maybe I'll just uh, go and have a cup of tea with my friends. <laughs> uh, or I could ask and say, does anyone want a, a, a substitute here? Can I, can, I, can I lend a hand here? And uh, that uh, you're not sort of getting compulsively active, but you know how to, to leave things alone if that's appropriate. So our intentions are part of the way things are. So it, uh, being content with the way things are can also be content with the fact that it's your, it's your responsibility to take action. So uh, that, uh, I, I feel, is an important thing to understand, that you're not, say, uh, disturbing the universe uh, by taking action by saying something, by involving yourself, by, by setting a direction, by taking initiative. This can be uh, very much being content with the way things are, okay, <laughs> do something. And it can, that can sound contradictory, but I feel it's, uh, it's important to see that that quality of, of peacefulness and contentment doesn't mean no work. <laughs> it doesn't mean switching off. And oftentimes we think of a relaxation or peace as sort of, you know, Collapsed in a heap in front of the TV. Yeah, real peace. So having a having time off means going numb. You know, society, uh, or or that we we look forward to retirement when I won't have to bother. Those kind of thoughts, (laughs) that oh, looking forward to Friday when the you know work finishes, uh, and I have a you know I won't have to bother. And we think of activity or engagement or responsibility as somehow intrinsically stressful or burdensome. But as part of this, I would suggest that that's not the case. It's all to do with our, our attitude. And that when the, the, the attitude is, is, shift, uh, is allowed to shift, then we find that we can engage and uh, to give our, our, our energy, our attention, our effort to, to do things. But it doesn't interrupt our, our innate peacefulness, that the peace is not disturbed by activity, by taking responsibility, by, by engagement. And so we find that we're not always longing for Friday or longing for the holiday or longing for retirement and, and resenting having to, to do something, but more when the, the, uh, the doing comes from that place of, of mindfulness and wisdom, then there's no, there's no dukkha involved in the doing, no pun intended. that <laughs> the doing doesn't lead to the dukkha, to suffering, to, to stress. So this is uh, learning how to work with the world, and that uh, you know, I can't second guess Hamlet. You know, <laughs> in the... He eventually did find his own way to, to resolve the problem, but it ended up with a pile of bodies on the stage. <laughs> it's like a heap of corpses. <laughs> so it, we try to uh, 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 avoid solving our, our issues in, in such um, kind of painful or, uh, or bloody ways. But uh, if we learn how to, say, watch the mind and learn how to let go of self-centered thinking and to, to develop this, this quality of uh, insight, developing the, the path of insight so we can watch likes and dislikes, feelings of pleasure and pain, approval, disapproval, uh, arising and passing, then that gives us the capacity to uh, live in a... a Uh, an alert and responsive way, so that we're not caught up in our our habits and compulsions, we're not uh, driven by by, fear and and, uh, irritation, but rather uh, our actions and our words are are guided by what's going to be the most benefit to ourselves and and others, and that uh, we find ourselves able to to resolve the difficulties, the the questions and dynamics that, uh, that we meet. Uh, far more easily. One, one last little story that um, comes to mind is an a Indian teaching tale about this, this particular area. So there's a, a guru has a, a very devoted disciple and um, uh, <coughs> the, one day the, the guru says, you know, if you obey my instructions, you know, nothing bad will ever happen to you. And the, the disciple thinks, well, that's really great. So you guarantee that. Absolutely, I guarantee that. If, if you follow my instructions, you know, you, you'll never experience uh, uh, anything bad happening to you. Oh, that's really great. Okay. Um, so, but, uh, you know, you, you have to pay attention. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, um, but if you do, and if you follow my instructions, then, then uh, you'll, be, you'll live in safety and security. So a little while later, the, the chela, the disciple, is walking down the, the street, and this elephant escapes from the... Um, from the uh, elephant stables comes charging down the, the street and uh, and so the the disciple thinks well my teacher said nothing bad will ever happen to me i can't be harmed so i don't have to kind of worry or get out of the way cuz you know i obviously you know uh, i'm protected by the guru right so on the uh, <coughs> on the um, the back of the elephant then the mahout the, the elephant handler is saying get out of the way get out of the way And uh, and he's saying, I'm fine, I don't need to get out of the way. My guru said I'm protected. He says, get out of the way, get out of the way. And then he thinks, well, you know, my guru said I'm going to be safe, so uh, why do I have to bother getting out of the way? Something's going to happen. And suddenly, (laughs) the elephant collides with him, knocks him sideways, and is left there in the dust. And um, the... uh, uh, so then the, the, the bruised and battered Chela disciple goes along to the ashram and says to the guru, <coughs> excuse me, Guruji, <laughs> but you know, you said if I, if I followed instructions, then yeah, not, uh, nothing bad would ever happen to me. And he said, well, didn't you hear the mahout shouting at you? <laughs> didn't you hear the elephant handler yelling at you, get out of the way, get out of the way? Says, well, you know, sometimes that your guru is... is a." yeah you know, it, it's not just uh, it's from this body that the voice of the guru can be can be heard but you know that uh, uh, many other people can be, the, the guru can speak through the mouths of many others and so when you see an elephant charging at you down the street you know get out of the way <laughs> but that's the the voice of wisdom is talking to you to to, to um to respond so with that uh, i'll finish there with these uh, these thoughts and leave this for you to reflect upon and we'll have a little pause now for about 20 minutes and then gather back together for uh, some uh, conversation.